Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point. And where, as we think about what differentiates Basecamp and R2 brands versus hypothetically some of our competitors or other franchise concepts out there, that singular focus on franchisee success is truly paramount. And as you look at ownership across a broader cohort of franchisors out there, obviously private equity is becoming more and more interested in the space. At the scaled level, you have a number of concepts, including restaurant brands that are now public. And often what you'll see is there's a conflict between what is in the best interest of the franchise system as a whole over the long term and what are required by investors in the short term. And thankfully, we have the ability and the flexibility, I really should say, to focus on long-term success. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. What's up, everyone? It's the Wolf. Today on the show, we have Zach and Tyler Gordon, the founders of Basecamp Franchising. Zach and Tyler aren't my typical guests. They're not multi-unit franchise owners, and they haven't founded a franchise brand. Instead, they've become part owners of two franchise brands, kid to kid and Uptown Cheapskate. Both of these brands were founded by the Sloan family, who started kid to kid in 1992 and then Uptown Cheapskate about 15 years later. Now stay with me here because I promise it's worth diving deep into, but both these brands are in the resale clothing industry. So if you're thinking thrift shops, that's not wrong, but you're going to be incredibly surprised at how compelling these franchises are from a unit economics perspective and the tailwinds that are benefiting this market sector as a whole. Not only that, through Zach and Tyler, we get to jump in a time machine and see why these two brands have a massive competitive mode today. Going back to 1992, when the Sloan family hired a software developer to build an inventory management and product appraisal system at a time when the internet wasn't even functional. Fast forward to today, and the data and operational efficiencies of that tech investment are starting to gain steam. But don't take my word for it. Keep listening to hear it from Zach and Tyler directly. Enjoy. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. Happy employees mean happy customers. Give your employees the best experience with Harry, the platform to solve your turnover, employee engagement, and compliance challenges, all in one place. Prioritize your people, reduce your risk. Visit harry.com today. That's H-A-R-R-I.com. Both you guys, Zach and Tyler, thanks for jumping on the show. I've been excited for this one, right? Because it's a bit of a unique perspective that you guys have coming in and effectively leading two franchise brands now, Kid to Kid and Uptown Cheapskate. I think a good starting point is just to see, you know, if you can give us an overview of 
what these two brands are and, and why they're a little bit different than your typical QSR or, you know, fitness franchise. Yeah, yeah, I'll take this one. So it's funny, clothing resale or, or thrifting, I'd say as it's known more colloquially, is not something that I frankly, had spent a lot of time focused on, you know, before I call it about three years ago, I started my career in really finance and investing, made my way to a company, RBI. So that's the holding company of Burger King, Popeyes and a couple other fast food brands. So it had always kind of come at franchising from the, the restaurant perspective, which is of course a subset within retail, but clothing resale is not something I had known all that much about. I was sitting there one day, this is maybe three months after my first daughter was born, wondering there's got to be a better way to handle all of this inventory, right? Like just an unbelievable kind of tidal wave of toys and clothing and books, you name it, that's useful for, I don't know, two months or something like that. And then you got to get, you know, the next size and the next set of toys. So I'm sitting there thinking, you know, again, there's got to be a better way. And in parallel, Tyler and I were kind of casting, trying to cast a wide net out into franchising, understanding, hey, are there kind of interesting opportunities out there? Not in restaurants, not in fitness, not in kind of the tried and true uh, industries, but in others. And I'd say the, the filters that we were applying were, were a couple. One, you know, really strong unit economics. Number two, you know, really, you know, interesting kind of industry fundamentals with white space and growth. And kind of serendipitously, these two kind of parallel tracks, this kind of thing that I'm thinking about, and then this exercise that we're doing in terms of franchising, end up uncovering these two amazing brands, Kid to Kid and, and Uptown Sheepskate, right? Uh, that are focused on taking you know, in large part clothes that, that people would probably just throw away, right? And giving them second, third, and fourth lives, right? And in doing so, not only allowing people who have those clothes, whether you have, you know, a three-month-old at home or, or a, you know, a high schooler to get cash for that clothing that no longer has utility for them. And then on the other side, giving uh, consumers, you know, 50, 70 plus percent off of items that again, otherwise might've just ended up in in the trash. So an amazing industry from those two perspectives and then an amazing franchise opportunity in the middle. Yeah, I was shocked because, and for folks who maybe aren't aware, so I covered this, one of their brands, Uptown Cheapskate in the newsletter, and I was very impressed with the numbers that's on March. So if you want to check that out, it's on my website. But yeah, I couldn't believe, you know, just resale of clothing and the numbers it could produce, it, it was quite impressive. So how did you two both fall into, right, the opportunity, right? Because I believe it's one family actually started both Kid to Kid and Uptown Cheapskate. So how did that relationship get started? Yeah, so really piggybacking on where Zach was referencing kind of this exercise we went through in terms of canvassing the franchise landscape, we end up uncovering Uptown Cheapskate and Kid to Kid. And it was one of those rare situations, at least in my professional experience, where the more you learn about an industry or the more you learn about a concept, the more excited you get. And so certainly as you look at the industry tailwinds, the concept of what historically has been a stigma around used clothing is now inverting, especially for younger populations and becoming cool. And then from a business fundamental standpoint, you referenced the unit economics, the growth trajectory, uh, kind of all of that coming together got us extremely excited. So our first step, honestly, in the adventure was thinking about becoming a franchisee and potentially opening up starting with one and then scaling over time to see if we could get to 5, 10, 15, 20 units over a longer term time horizon. Throughout that discovery process, we were really fortunate that we got introduced to the Sloan family. And so the Sloan family are the founders of Kid to Kid and Uptown Cheapskate. Uh, so found Kid to Kid all the way back in 1992 and then Uptown Cheapskate in 2009. And again, the first permutation of those discussions were really around 
joining their concepts as a franchisee to make what could be a, a long story, at least a little bit shorter. Ultimately, those conversations evolved into considering a potential partnership on the franchisor level. And really what was important to them and really important to us is not just a like-minded sense of what is important from a growth standpoint and, and growing the right way, as opposed to just growing quickly and growing for growth sake, but then also a shared set of, of values and how we conduct ourselves just as individuals and around the office and with our franchisees. And so those conversations ended up transpiring for the better part of the year and ultimately culminated last September in Zach and I formalizing that partnership and then joining the company full-time in September. Amazing. And so as it stands today, right, it's uh, Basecamp Franchising. You know, that's your company, which oversees these two brands, correct? Yeah, exactly. And the way to think about that is while they are very distinct concepts in Kit the Kid and Uptown Cheapskate, ultimately from an operational standpoint, they have a lot of similarities. So if you think about resale, resale is actually very operationally complex. And honestly, there's a lot of subjectivity in the model inherently. So what do you buy? When you buy something, how much do you pay for it? Once you have it in inventory, when do you put it out on your shelves? What do you price it at initially? When do you mark it down? Again, this can be a very subjective business model. And what we have done is take a lot of that subjectivity and put it into well-defined processes and systems and support infrastructure to make the stores not only more efficient and more profitable, but also creating real consistency from a consumer experience standpoint. And so a lot of those work streams and processes are very similar across kid to kid and Uptown Cheapskate. So while they are two separate brands, they share a lot of the same infrastructure underneath the Basecamp umbrella. Sure. Now, I mean, I totally uh, operationally, I think it's clear that there's tons of just overlap with both concepts. I want to go back to something though you mentioned earlier. You know, I'm just curious for you two as, as entrepreneurs, right? What was that mindset shift like where you're pursuing something originally with the idea of I'm going to be a franchisee? And then at the end of that process, you find yourself, oh, well, we're actually a franchisor and of two brands. Like what? I mean, obviously, Zach, I know you had some experience at RBI, so that I'm sure shed a lot of light on the franchisor side of things. But still, you know, what was that like for both of you? Yeah, I would say that actually the transition mentally wasn't that complicated. Why? Because the exercise ends up being pretty much the same, whether you're a franchisee or an arc. In, at least in the way that we think about things, if you're a franchisor, it all, it all comes down to franchisee success, right? Unit economics. So driving performance at the store level, making the operations more efficient. Again, as Tyler said, this is a very complicated industry. That's why you walk into, you know, a mom and pop thrift shop and you aren't blown away by the consumer experience, right? By and large, it's very complicated. So if you can make an experience, you know, marginally more efficient over time, you're going to do better and better than your competition. So this is a very operationally complex industry. And so to the extent that you're as a franchisee able to make your operations more efficient or as the franchisor, you're able to identify things, right, that maybe even franchisees are already doing in one part of the system and, you know, identify that, not only identify, but then sort of share those best practices across the system. You know, the end result you're always looking for is how do we drive unit level performance. And then from a market perspective, uh, in terms of sales potential, because ultimately in any kind of retail, you know, context, when you have significant fixed costs, your lease manager, a variety of, you know, fixed costs that you have to contend with year to year, 
really what drives profitability. The most important driver is always going to be top line growth. So, okay, how do we then similarly identify whether it's a lo the local level as a franchisee, opportunities to you know tap into different parts of the community and get people excited about your concept and coming into your store as the franchisor, you know, helping franchisees accomplish that goal, but then also, you know, thinking about branding at a regional level and a national level. So the exercise is, is quite similar, I would say, at least again, from our perspective, in the sense that it's always focused on driving unit level profitability. Yeah. And I think that that's a really important point. And where, as we think about what differentiates Basecamp and R2 brands versus hypothetically some of our competitors or other franchise concepts out there, that singular focus on franchisee success is truly paramount. And as you look at ownership across a broader cohort of franchisors out there, obviously private equity is becoming more and more interested in the space. At the scaled level, you have a number of concepts, including restaurant brands that are now public. And often what you'll see is there's a conflict between what is in the best interest of the franchise system as a whole over the long term and what are required by investors in the short term. And thankfully, we have the ability and the flexibility, I really should say, to focus on long-term success. And so for us, it was actually very easy to go from the mindset of, all right, whether we're owning one store or 10 stores, what's required to make sure that that endeavor is profitable and successful and manageable to then at the franchisor level, how do we create support infrastructure to make sure that that can be accomplished for all of our franchisees across the U.S.? Understood. No, I love that. I mean, I guess it's, uh, I mean, in reality, it's two sides of the same coin, Absolutely. that franchise or franchisee relationship. So yeah, you're kind of just a quick flip of the side, the coin for you guys there. You know, earlier, one of you, I, I think it was Zach, but I'm not sure, mentioned just that you loved the tailwinds in this kind of sector, let's call it, and specifically this inversion of, you know, younger, maybe the younger generation is actually getting more excited. And like, there's a trend of people buying clothes from these resale stores. How did you pick up on that? I mean, is that like, you know, when I was in college, Macklemore's thrift shop was <laughs> a banger. Like, is, What's the trend here that kind of, you know, caught your attention there? Look, it, it's really interesting. One of the most powerful kind of motivators of consumer behavior is value, right? If, if you're getting good value for whatever, you know, product, whether it's a good or a service that you're considering, the odds that you're going to kind of walk out the door feeling good and you're going to want to come back and get more again of that really great value are pretty high. However, it's really, really hard to deliver value to consumers, right? And if you consider the types of companies that are able to do it, often it has a lot to do with scale, right? So it's Walmart or it's Costco and they can basically sledgehammer their suppliers and pass along, you know, a lot of the savings to their consumers. So value is always, we like to say value never goes out of style. In this case, it's been interesting. There's been a barrier to consumers accessing what is really fundamentally fantastic value. So the brands that we sell in our shops, whether it's Lululemon or American Eagle, you know, we don't focus in on one or another brand in particular, so we can kind of move with the trends. But these are the best prices out there on the market. And yes, the clothing is used, but in most cases, it's very lightly used, right? So consider how many items might even be in your closet, right? That you've worn three, four or five times, or maybe even once, maybe zero times, right? Right? So those are the types of garments that end up in our stores, right? It's the ones that people never ended up wearing anyway, or they wore only a handful of times. So they're basically new. Obviously, they are technically used, but they're basically new and they're sold again at 50, 70 plus percent off. So really compelling value. What have been those two obstacles, I would say? One, it's been this stigma around used clothing, which, you know, 
if you look sort of at different cohorts, different generations, you can still see uh, is present in the market. However, uh, as sustainability has become more of a focus in general, but for consumers, it's become cool, right? To, to actually shop and, and to buy things that, again, would have otherwise ended up in a landfill. So, so that has a lot to do with it. And as that stigma has declined, people have, I think, started to come into thrift shops, ours included, or clothing resale shops, and realize, wow, this is also a really good deal. <laughs> I can't believe this. And sustainability from a consumer perspective has, by and large, been a, a luxury good, right? So yeah, it's sustainable, but you got to pay kind of a premium for it. And you could think about that in, in so many different categories. Here, you're getting that kind of feel-good sustainability and really legitimate sustainability angle with value. I'd say the other obstacle has been just that, and I mentioned it already, when you walk into a, a thrift shop in general, you're not blown away by the consumer experience, right? The assortment is not interesting. Uh, maybe you'd consider purchasing 1% of the stuff that you might encounter in the shop. If you were to come back into the same shop three months down the road, you probably see the same stuff, right? So it's really important to kind of have fluidity and have things moving off the shelves quickly. That requires a lot of I would say professionalization systems that make what is almost an impossible task, right? That Tyler was describing earlier with all of these different sources of complexity and making it not only possible, but very possible. And in, 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 you know, in our case, quite profitable as well. So you've had both of these things kind of happening in parallel. One, you've had the shift in kind of consumer attitudes, one, and then two, the emergence of, let's call them more professionalized clothing resale companies that at the same time are kind of converging and resulting in people thinking, wow, uh, this is sustainable and it's really good value. It's a great point. Yeah. And I mean, especially uh, I could see that. And even even just the professionalization and standardization, I mean, back to, I guess, me, you know, me in college, when I think about it, I used to go to a thrift shop, probably would do it once a quarter. You know, there's some themed party, like let's get the Hawaiian shirt from the, <laughs> from the thrift shop. But we also loved it because it is, you know, $5 and sometimes you'd find some like cool stuff there. Yeah, and I would say there, there's definitely still a cohort of our customers that, that are similar to that experience. You might, you might be in <laughs> yeah. college and are, are looking for something for a theme party. But I would say there's an ever increasing cohort and the majority of our shoppers who really just view this as the place of where they get most of their clothing. And to Zach's point, the benefit that they have is if they come in in January, if they come back in April, the assortment is going to be completely different and they're all unique items. So if they're going to walk into their school classroom or into a dinner date, the clothes that they're going to wear, they're going to be unique and they're going to feel great about it because not only do they get best in class value, but it's also really a sustainable endeavor as well. That's a great point. And I think the trend for a while now, so not to like, beat a dead horse that's been, you know, just talked about endlessly, but where retail, the retailers that have done better in the last five years provide more of an experience, right, in their stores. And just the, the sheer fact that the inventory is potentially vastly different, like in a good way, each time you walk in, like that drives curiosity, that drives excitement, and it drives foot traffic, I would imagine as well. Yeah. And, and you see that very clearly in our numbers. We'll be issuing our next FDD in the next few weeks. And what you'll see in that is for both of our concepts, for both for Kid to Kid and Uptown Cheapskate, comparable sales last year grew double digits for both. And that's off of what was a, a really, really strong cop in 2021. If you look to your point across the broader 
group of retailers out there in the U.S. and more broadly and honestly, both brick and mortar and online, there are not very many concepts that even really held flat your year, let alone experience double-digit growth. And so from our standpoint, that really helps to substantiate both the industry momentum, but then really importantly, within the context of that industry, how our concepts are really resonating. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that that new FDD. That's my favorite. <laughs> I'm curious, as much as you guys are able to share, you know, I don't want, I'm obviously not asking for the secret sauce here, but Zach said earlier, you know, mentioned a few brands, Lululemon and a few other like clothing brands that could end up in your store. I mean, for one, I think that if the listener, if the tone hasn't been set, I think that really set the tone for me in this conversation. I'm like, okay, like shifting my mindset. We're like, yeah, this, I wouldn't call this a thrift store because I think of that dusty, kind of dirty, honestly, thrift shop I used to go to in college and they definitely didn't have Lululemon. But how do you, you know, source like these items? Because, you know, especially right along the lines of what Zach was saying, I'm wearing a Henley t-shirt. I pretty much only wear the same four Henley t-shirts and I don't even know why I have the rest of my clothes in my closet. So if I was to get rid of those though, how would I, you know, I don't even know what I would do. I'd probably honestly give them to like my younger cousin, but if I was like, I don't have anyone to give them to, I, d- I feel bad throwing them out. You know, how do you get into my head as the consumer of like, oh, there's this option to give it to Uptown Cheapskate or Kid to Kid? And really that is, I would say, the source of the opportunity here. There are tons of people like you and like me, right? I have the same kind of issue, which is that I have a whole bunch of inventory, right? That's just collecting dust in my closet. And there's a lot of value traps in my closet, like when it comes down to it. And inventory for for our industry will never be the bottleneck. There is not an unlimited amount, but there is an ocean of inventory out there that again is gently used, brands that people know they like and that they would happily pay good money for. Yeah, but there's an education gap, right? What do I do with it? You know, and that's a question that, that people really struggle with. They try to give it away, but you know, when it comes down to it, okay, now it's actually time to move apartments. A lot of it just ends up getting thrown away. Like the vast majority of it ends up getting thrown away. It stays, you know, in your closet perpetually until, you know, it ends up in, in the garbage can. So there's a customer education point here. And there's been a really meaningful, I would say, push in terms of customer education, not just from brands like ours, but all, also the online players, right? So you have companies like FredUp and Real Real, Poshmark, a variety of other players that uh, have emphasized, hey, you can do something with the clothing that, that's trapped in your closet. When it comes down to it, the online model, and we've done quite a bit of work on this, works well for items that have a higher price point, right? Just because there's shipping costs, there's a lot of friction in terms of listing the items, there's all kind of hoops that you have to jump through. For lower value items, so call it 30 even $50 or, or less, there aren't really any or many good options. So look, one of the big points of focus when we open an Uptown Cheapskate or a Kid to Kid in a new market is just trying to blanket that kind of local market with the message that, hey, we've got cash, you've got clothes, let's talk, right? <laughs> and it's really as simple as that. And, and people you know, don't really know how to interact with the concept at first. Our level of awareness, I would say, is got, it's in the single digits in terms of kind of brand awareness. But when they come in, they start to understand what the model is. By and large, we see consumers love it. So we have millions of consumers who have given us their contact information. That's their email address, their phone number, because they really get kind of the the exchange of value that's taking place in our stores. So there's an important customer education part of it, but it's cumulative, right? So as time goes on, the story, at least in our observation, looking backwards and our expectation looking forwards, kind of just gets better and better. In our view, there's a real shift happening 
in terms of consumer behavior as it relates to clothing towards, as Tyler was saying, not just, hey, I've got a costume party coming up. Let me check out the thrift shop. But hey, you know, I'm going to buy some number of, you know, items of clothing this year. 5% of them are going to be used, 10%, 15%, 30%. And that's kind of the trend I'd say that's underlying our thinking as it relates to to the category. Yeah. And I would say just just maybe putting a finer point on one element there, we've spent a lot of time talking about the value proposition and the customer experience on the customer side. So somebody who's coming in and buying a used article of clothing, as we think about it, there are a number of different layers of value. One very critical one is on the buy side as well. And so if you're somebody who's has a large swath of clothing, just picking up dust in your closet that might otherwise just be thrown out, you can bring them to one of our kid to kid and uptown cheapskate stores and get real value in cash on the spot. And that is a real source of value for those individuals. A substantial percentage of those individuals end up becoming our customers as well, because as they're waiting there and as they are exchanging their clothes for cash, they look around and they say, wow, look at these great new styles and then become a customer as well. And this is especially true on the kid side, right? So what I was describing earlier about this thought exercise I was doing, there's got to be a better way. You know, if I'm bringing in my daughters and I have two daughters, they're kind of old stuff that doesn't fit them anymore. I'm in the market for the next size up, right? At that very same moment in time. So it makes a lot of sense for me to just, okay, take in these clothes and and get the next size up at the same store. Definitely. Something that So Tyler, what you just said, I could see exactly why. I mean, that's great for the buy side, right? Is, you know, you get to trade in your clothes for instant cash. There's no shipping. You know, I don't know, maybe I'm sure these online digital companies, right? Like ThreadUp or whoever, uh, you probably have to like ship it or even if that's a thing, I could totally see the value of like, just drive to this store. I can get, A, get rid of it, get it off, get it out of my house, but then B, I'm getting cash for it. However, for you guys and your franchisees, I mean, there's an opera, there's a real operational challenge there. I mean, it's like whatever that show is that, you know, where it is literally a thrift shop and people are like finding million dollar items in there. It's really popular, but I'm drawing a blank on it. Regardless, I think. That's it. Yeah. Pawns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So a little different, but how are you guys valuing? Like if I bring in my t-shirts, how are you going to know how much that costs? Is it brand? Is it, what if it's made of? silk instead of i don't know cotton you know like and the inventory aspect sorry yeah just the whole thing i mean that's not uh it sounds simple from the customer side i'm saying this for the franchisees yeah there's a real operational edge i'm assuming that you guys have there we all know that when employees are happy so are your customers if you want to provide the best experience for your employees you need harry harry is the platform Founded by a restaurateur, Harry solves turnover, employee engagement, and compliance all in one place. Set your team up for success and join over 50,000 restaurants and hotels around the world. Put your people first and visit harry.com for a free demo. That's H-A-R-R-I.com. You know, it's interesting. I've looked at so many different franchise concepts, obviously a lot of them in the restaurant space, but then also outside the restaurant space as well. And you always have to ask yourself, why would I even want to become a franchisee, right? When I could do it myself or I could join a competitor. You need to have a really good answer to that question as a franchisor. And typically in the restaurant space, it has a lot to do with brand, which of course also reflects the menu and and sort of the vibe and the personality of the experience that, that people expect when they come in. But it's really the brand, right? You drive by a McDonald's and you're likely to go in just because it's a McDonald's, right? 
In our case, I guess as I was alluding to earlier, the brands are at an earlier stage of development. Uh, so that's not as sort of front and center, although increasingly it is of a kind of selling point for franchisees. What are, I would say, they really getting in a differentiated sense? Two things in particular I would highlight. One is a set of systems, right? And we've talked about kind of these conceptual systems, how to manage inventory, you know, when to mark things down, Spring season is coming up, right? You got to be merchandising and thinking ahead uh, so that you have the right stuff out on your floor at the right time. Really critically, it comes down to our software program. So we have a proprietary software suite uh, that combines point of sale, product appraisal, and inventory management. Uh, such that if somebody comes in with a box full of random clothing, they dump it out on the counter. First sort of stop on the train in terms of the exercise is, okay, we've got to figure out what we're going to buy, right? Out of these 20 garments, We've identified maybe, let's call it five, that we're going to buy. Of those five, then, we take them one by one, or the employees in the store take them one by one and start inputting attributes. Brand, what type of garment is it? Is it a pair of jeans? Is it a hat? You know, it could be any number of different things. What size is it? What condition is it in? And as they're inputting these attributes, the system is percolating and spitting out a tighter and tighter range of prices from which then the employee chooses to not only price that garment, okay, here's the cash that I'm going to be paying you today, but then also mark it up with the price that it's going to sell for at retail. That program then also just queues everything up, prints out tags such that one minute you can be doing what I'm describing, then you punch the tag, you attach the tag to the garment, and truly 10 minutes later, it can be out on the floor. So for really, you know, sort of in-demand items, often you'll see them bought and sold in the same day at the store. So it's technology, not only on pricing, but the inventory management, like at what point did I end up selling this garment, right? Did it take me, you know, a couple of hours to sell or did it take me 90 days to sell? That's very important information that then feeds back into kind of the pricing and the logic of how you would think about purchasing the next similar item, right? Because if it took 90 days to sell, you mispriced it, right? So you should probably pay less for that next time. That type of thing, yeah, also you're able to do with the Kind of unbelievable, I would say, amount of data that we're collecting at the item level, at the customer level. You can go back in time and look at every single item you've ever sold in your store, at least post the rollout of our point of sale system a number of years ago. And that's very powerful, right? So it's the technology is one real point of differentiation. Number two, at this point, we have 200 stores, right? Uh, so we don't have, uh, we're, we're nowhere near the size of RBI, but 200 is a big number, right? And so I, as a franchisee, again, harnessing this wealth of data that we have, I can see how I'm doing, how somebody down the street is doing, how somebody in another region is doing. And to the extent that I'm falling short in a particular dimension, I can look out and see who's doing well on that dimension, pick up the phone and ask them what they're doing, right? So it's this community aspect, which is not only data-driven, but that's one thing that I'd say in terms of our interactions with franchisees when we were even considered becoming franchisees, right? So before we made this change to, hey, maybe there's something to do with the franchisor level, our franchisees are incredible. It's a community that I've never seen, frankly, before in franchising. The level of support the franchisees give to one another, as just a, a concrete example, our franchisees will fly to another franchisee's grand opening on their own dime to help them make sure they get out of the gates prone, right? I've never heard of another franchise system where people are doing that. That's a first. So the kind of benchmarking that's possible given the data that we're generating and then also just this really constructive community dynamic i would say these are the things that make our system i would say worth joining as a franchise that's incredible and and yeah i mean that was something i wanted to touch on that you you did it's like the turnover ratio you know if uh my most astute 
Wolf of Franchises listeners would probably have heard this once or twice before that my first foray into franchising was through a supply house franchise in the HVAC and plumbing world. But that was a big worry of ours. I remember getting trained on it in week one, which is an item goes in the shelf. How long is it going to sit there before someone buys it and we get our cash back for it? So it sounds like that's factored in. But yeah, I mean, that whole software suite, you know, and you, I love the way you broke it down that it's the point of sale, product appraisal, and then inventory management. Those are the kind of the three key areas, I guess, that you need to focus on in a resale business, right? That's a serious edge because I know for damn sure that the thrift shop back in Massachusetts where I went to school <laughs> did not have that. But I mean, how old is it in the sense of like, Oh uh, yeah. When did that development start? Because I'm just fascinated by the idea of that. And that's a, that to me, that sounds like if I'm a franchisee, my antenna's going off where that's a serious moat. But so that's one question is when it started. But secondly, you know, I would imagine, is it a compounding moat in the sense of, right, 200 stores, more and more, as the more data in the system, the more accurate and the more, yeah, just the better the system gets as a whole, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And Zach, maybe why don't you start with the, uh, the kind of backwards component yeah. and then I can get into the, the path forward from here. Yeah, look, it, it goes back to the very beginning of the franchise. So the first non-Sloan, so the Sloans are, are the founders of, of the company back in 1992. The first non-Sloan employee of the company was a computer programmer in the 90s. So the Sloans hired a computer programmer before they even owned a PC themselves. So talk about, you know, vision, I would say, right? That's forced. For this to work, we need to have a system that tells you how to handle the subjectivity, right? That's walking through your door every single day. How do I price this item, right? And even for successful mom and pop thrift operators, to the extent that they're good at that, it's probably compartmentalized in one person's head, right? And they're just really good at the pricing. The Sloans, again, with incredible foresight, uh, identified that, boy, this is a source of subjectivity that we need to address in order to make this scale, right? Beyond the, I'd say, single operator kind of level. So it goes back to 1992. From there, it's basically just been building progressively on that first computer program. And so today uh, we have a tech team of about 20 people. Um, about half of that is on the engineering side. So this is, from a kind of R&D perspective, certainly the biggest point of focus for the franchise. Yeah, and maybe building on that in terms of how this will evolve going forward. So as Zach came in and I came in last September, one of the most critical components that we were focused on was hiring. We've got a tremendous team of employees here at Basecamp across a number of different functional areas. But as we continue to grow, we're going to continue to need to add capabilities and individuals to progressively get us to the next level. And, and one of the individuals that we hired was on the technology side, a new CTO who is absolutely spectacular. And we have a, a very detailed and very long roadmap of what we're hoping to accomplish, really that all is evolved around A, making our stores as efficient and honestly, as increasing or decreasing the level of complexity to the greatest extent possible, but then also making sure that whether from a pricing standpoint and inventory management standpoint, to really keep pushing ourselves to a greater and getting level. And I'd say that's a, a really consistent theme about how we think about everything which is really to make sure that we are never complacent. So just because our point of sale system or inventory management system or appraisal system, we truly think that those are our best in class across the industry today. That doesn't mean that we don't see real and meaningful opportunities for improvement. And every single day, what keeps Zach and I motivated to come in is to keep charging against 
those aspirational goals of how we can continue to make the lives of our franchisees easier and to make their stores more profitable. And so, yes, I think over time, the competitive advantage we have today, if you fast forward the clock one year, five year, 10 years, it's just going to continue to expand. It's amazing. And I think it's just such a fascinating story that the fact that back in the early 1990s, they were already thinking about this. I mean, Amazon, I don't even think it was founded yet in 1992. I mean, it's incredible. The vision, you know, that kind of reminds me, obviously totally different, but like Domino's is famous for, you know, they had like a a way to order pizza online back in the 90s, where it's literally like, I mean, today it looks like crap, (laughs) but it's pretty awesome to look back at where you could like drag pizza toppings onto like a static image or something. And it was, it almost looked like a early version of a computer video game, but you know, here they are today. And like, that's why, you know, they've been able to dominate is because they were investing in technology to make delivery a lot easier. And again, totally different industry that you guys are operating in. But, you know, that kind of obviously the thesis played out that anyone who invested in tech, it's obviously a game changer for the business. So that's fascinating to hear. Yeah. And I'd say from that perspective, if you're going to make big investments in tech, I'd say you want to be confident that that technology is going to be used in an industry that you know, really generates value, right? Because tech for its own sake isn't really worth anything, but applied, right, to an industry where there's real opportunity, that's where it's, wow, really powerful. And that's, I'd say, going back even to your first question, the thing that's almost been most surprising to me, first of all, there are over 10,000 thrift shops in the US, right? So this is a very large and established industry. It's just not one that's been particularly professional, right? As you, again, just think back on the various experiences you've probably had in thrift stores. So just a huge, a huge opportunity, right? And you look at our franchisees who are in the middle of an equation that already is generating a lot of value, right? For the person who's coming in and getting cash for their clothes and for the person who's buying those same clothes for 50, 70 plus percent off, our franchisees as middlemen are making, you know, pretty good business, right? At, at the level of the single location, we have many, many multi-unit franchisees who are able to kind of compound uh, on the kind of experience that they've built in their first stores. Uh, so it's a very value-rich environment. And we haven't even talked really about, you know, the societal aspect of this as well. This is truly sustainable, right? It's it's not window dressing. And so as Tyler and I think about, you know, continuing to build out our technology and making our stores more efficient. And by virtue of that, making it easier for consumers to, you know, come into our stores for their incremental purchases rather than go to Target or wherever else they might consider going. There's a really positive externality to that, right? You're going to be preventing more and more garments that, again, largely would have gone into into the garbage from kind of ending their life prematurely, right? And so there's a There's a veneer here that's really important to us. It's really important to our franchisees. It's something we talked quite a bit about at our annual meeting in February, which is that our success actually really does have a positive externality here for everybody. So that's some more gas in the tank, let's say, more motivation for getting up every day and and trying to make our systems better and better. It's phenomenal. The the mission is great. And yeah, it's, I mean, there's no reason to not get behind it. So as far as your competition, you know, we've talked about just, individual thrift shops. Is there, I mean, I know, I think like I could be totally off the look, fashion is definitely not my forte folks, but like TJ Maxx or Marshall's might be resellers. I mean, like, is there a big competitor in this market or are you guys kind of already at the top and just growing? Yeah. So there are obviously the traditional retailers. So you referenced the TJ Maxx yeah. and other kind of discounters, but the reality is that we're very, very early innings of, I would say the evolution of the industry. And so As we think about the landscape today relative to where it's going to be in 10 or 20 years, 
the number of R concepts that will be out there and the degree to which the space has become more professionalized, I think will only continue to expand. So I'd say we're really at the, despite the fact that resale has been around forever, and as Axpoint, there are 10,000 plus thrift stores across the US, I think we're still really in the infancy in terms of where we see the evolution over time. Yeah, and a window into that that I think is a useful one is there are different markets across the U.S. that are you know substantially more developed than others as it relates to this kind of professional resale kind of sub-segment. Austin, Texas would stand out, right? You've got Buffalo Exchange, which is another pretty large, more professionalized kind of reseller. Um, you've got, I'd say, as much competition in Austin as probably anywhere in the whole world. And our stores in, in Austin are very successful. So it's interesting. You know, you're always focused, I think, as a franchisee on cannibalization. Oh, if somebody opens nearby, whether it's in the same concept or in another concept that, that competes directly with me, is that just going to, you know, kneecap my business? And look, we have plenty of data points now on, you know, this particular topic. And, you know, while maybe in the first year you see some kind of impact, right, which is to be expected, I would say, right? Just because, well, if that new store is closer to where some people live, like they're going to go check it out as well. Pretty quickly and then certainly over time, you actually end up seeing the rising tide lift all boats. And and why is that? It's because, again, the biggest, you know, challenge, but what we view opportunity of the space is that just a lot of people don't even know what it is, right? So people's kind of conception of a thrift store is very, very, very different than than what they encounter when they walk into an uptown cheapskate or, or a kid to kit. And so the customer education that happens, which is hooked in, right, to just even the, the availability, right, of the model in the market actually ends up more than offsetting, substantially offsetting kind of the impact of, oh, gee, now I'm no longer the only game in town, right? For sure. I mean, I think, Look, there's never, and this was a common thing I learned early in franchising is uh, from a franchisee buying perspective, you know, the most common pushback I'd hear when I was trying to, you know, work with some of the emerging franchisors that I used to work with, you know, they'd always be very concerned about competitors. But if you look at any, like, not necessarily saturated industry, but just, you know, a developed market for, you know, QSR and fast food, right? Restaurant Brands International, you guys own Burger King and Tim Hortons. Let's just pick coffee and burgers. I mean, how many burger chains are there in America? (laughs) Imagine the people in the 60s or 70s who missed out on McDonald's and and said, ah, like McDonald's already exists. I'm not going to buy into Burger King, Wendy's, Five Guys, Culver. I mean, the list goes on and on. And not to say that like every industry is going to go that deep because it's America and we love our beef. But the bottom line is that there's never just very rare to see a winner take all market in brick and mortar. So I do agree it's early innings and it's just, yeah, this, to me, this is like, again, it's last March or, you know, a month ago when I covered you guys in the newsletter, it just started clicking in my brain and getting on my radar. So to me, this does seem like it's an interesting shift that again, since I'm just the dude who wears heavy (laughs) t-shirts, I was never privy to this market. Like you mentioned Austin from a franchisee perspective, you know, is there a certain demographic that you're, you like to see these stores pop up in? Is it in a strip mall? Is it? Yeah, like shopping centers. I mean, you know, is there certain markets that you think that the, whether it's kid to kid or uptown cheapskate, that, that you see them perform better in? Yeah. So there's the general parameters just on population density and really the population of individuals uh, that will be important, both on buying and procuring clothing, but then also selling them further downstream. And so for kid to kid, obviously that's oriented around infants really until about 12 to 14 year olds. And then for uptown cheapskate, 
it's more in the teenage categories and then into young adults. And so there's a demographic component. Thankfully, from a real estate angle, where if you're looking at a, so not to pick on QSR concepts, but where you really want to be really well positioned across an intersection of really busy roads. Thankfully, as we look across our platform, there's not as much of an over-reliance on being in an A-plus real estate location. So you will see a lot of them in shopping centers or strip malls. And there is a lot, as long as they have, again, those demographic attributes, they're going to be very successful. Okay, that's great. I don't see why not. Uh, yeah, and like, I mean, QSR is commoditized, right? So that's why they kind of do need that. It's like the location is so critical because you're jumping off a highway, you're just looking for a quick bite. Absolutely. Uh, that convenience factor is massive. Yeah, and you know, actually just jumping on something that you were talking about, penetration, right? Uh, in our view, our level of penetration, I mean, if, you know, if the country is a bucket, we've got a couple drops, I would say, in the bucket. <laughs> and, you know, what's, and the bucket is growing too, right? With consumers, you know, increasingly, again, focused on sustainability and, of course, always loving great value. So that combination from our perspective, and you see it, you know, as consumers come in once, they come in twice. And then all of a sudden, you know, we've got consumers who are coming once a month, right? And then they're, you know, directing a really significant percentage of their purchases to resale. Consumer behavior, you know, is, is tough to change, right? And so these shifts can happen slowly. Uh, you've seen it reflected, frankly, over the last 10, 20 years of really consistent growth uh, at both Uptown Cheapskate and kid to kid it's, it's remarkable. Tyler and I have looked at, I don't know how many different businesses over the course of our career. Rarely do you see just like this Really, I mean, it's significant, but it's also just really consistent growth over time. In the last five years in particular, you know, with this kind of activation, again, of sustainability that, that's allowing people to focus now on what's always been there, which is value, you've seen that growth rate pick up. And in our view, there's nothing to suggest that, you know, that's likely to change in the near term. To the contrary, uh, if you look at these concepts, and we have, you know, obviously a lot of data going back 30 years to 1992, in moments of macroeconomic uncertainty, right, where your budget maybe is shrinking at the household level, you have less money to spend, well, value is even more important, right? So if you were already thinking about it, right, oh, thrifts, clothing resale, this is interesting. I'm, should I go check that out? That's a pretty good reason, right, to go check it out, right, that you can save a lot of money while you're checking it out. So we're already seeing that and who knows what's going to happen, right? I don't have a crystal ball as it relates to the economy, but to the extent that you know, there are more headwinds than tailwinds on the horizon from a macro perspective. By and large, we would expect that to be more of a motivator. And in fact, we've seen that historically to have been more of a motivator for consumers to come into our stores. Yeah, it's almost like you guys have for, for very different reasons. So just keep that in mind before I say this analogy, but like alcohol it is the saying, you know, in good times and bad, we're drinking. But for you guys, it kind of seems like in good times or bad, people are going to walk in because it's cool to be buying, you know, these types of the, the clothing that you have there. But then in bad times, there is that price factor where, you know, you can be get a better bang for your buck. So that's a really good spot to be in, I think. You know, there's a lot of franchises where maybe macro headwinds do, you do see that follow through to your customers and their traffic and to, to your stores. So yeah, that's great. I think in, in wrapping up here, I'm, I'm curious about just, you know, kind of your long-term plans for this, but also at the franchisee level, you know, how you see it playing out. And I, I maybe a good, better way of asking that is just like today, you got 200 stores, you know, if you don't mind sharing, like, how many units is the largest franchisee owned and th does the largest franchisee own? And the, where I'm going with that is just like, yeah, I mean, you see other systems, P 
people can get to 10, 20, hundreds of units. Is that possible with a business like this? Yeah, I'll start with that second question, and then we can talk about a little bit of our vision going forward. So as you look at our system today, so as Zach pointed out, we've got just over 200 stores across 29 states and then have another 20 plus stores internationally. So both in Canada and then in Europe as well. As we look at our multi-unit owners, we've got around 40 multi-unit owners today. The largest of those multi-unit owners has just under 20 stores. You then have another handful who are kind of plus or minus around five stores. As we think about the key drivers of our growth, both over the past few years and then going forward, a really critical component of that will be expansion from existing franchisees. So if you look at 2022, uh, we opened 27 uh, stores across our two concepts. This year, we'll open around 40. I'd say momentum from there is really only just picking up steam. If you look at the majority of those openings, they're from existing franchisees. And from our perspective, that is truly the the best type of growth and honestly also the best source of validation to see our franchisees who have come into our system and entrusted us with what is often the biggest professional decision of their lives to then want to open that second store, the third store, the fifth, hopefully getting up to 10 plus stores. So we definitely think it is possible if you look at the performance of those multi-unit franchisees, it's really compelling across the board. I'd say it also then just gets back into our general perspective on how we want to grow. We take the decision of who to let into our franchise system extraordinarily seriously. There will be plenty of other concepts that will prioritize growth for growth's sake and try to put dots on the map. Our perspective is we would prefer to grow slowly with the right people who then have that ability to become multi-unit franchisees over time. Those are the type of people that we really want to attract into our system. And and that's really a reason why Zach and I spend so much of our time interacting with prospective candidates, that we can make sure that not only are they going to be successful day one, they're going to be really supportive contributors to our overall system that ultimately will grow over time within our brands. Yeah, I love the long-term mindset. And I'm going to guess then that maybe eats into that other question I asked, which was your guys' long-term vision for Basecamp. You know, is it the become the RBI of resale clothing brands or, you know, do you have plans to maybe expand to other industries? You know, is what's the thought? Look, I would say that we feel we have so much opportunity with these two incredible brands that, that the Sloan family invented we're focused on on those two brands, right? And underpinning them is, is the yep. software that we talked about earlier. We've got our work cut out for us. Honestly, for the initiatives that we've identified, if you put them back to back and just assumed that we could, you know, move through them with lightning speed, it would still take us five or 10 years <laughs> to get through all the different initiatives <laughs> that we've identified. Yeah. So we're focused really just on, you know, again, these two phenomenal concepts that we have. Today, look, we're always open-minded. I think it's critical to be open-minded, frankly, as a franchisor, right? Uh, that's how your systems evolve, whether you're considering you know, partnering with new uh, brands or just trying to make your existing brands better and better. You, you have to be open-minded and, hey, a franchisee over there is doing something really different and interesting. Like, Let's evaluate that and see if you know, maybe some of our other franchisees should start doing it as well. That's, that's really important. So we're always going to be open-minded. And so who knows kind of what opportunities might flow down the river. But I would say that for us, we're focused on, on the two that we have. For me, from a professional and personal standpoint, 
And Tyler, I know would say the same thing. I'd be delighted if this is the last job that I ever have, right? Which is just, you know, helping (laughs) to grow these brands for their own sake, but then also, again, given that positive externality that we've talked about as well. I feel lucky, frankly, when I wake up every morning that that this is the the industry that, that I work in, that these are the brands that I get to help to try to grow. So, you know, sort of indefinite. Uh, Salt Lake City, we're, you know, recent residents or, you know, we've moved to Salt Lake City. Phenomenal city as well. So no reason uh, to expect anything other than in 30 years, I'll be doing the exact same thing. Amazing. Yeah. And I would say it, it also gets back to this fundamental premise that we have, which is wake up every single day and try to do it still on the rest of our team, the same mindset of putting franchisee success first. If you do that, everything else will solve itself. And so as we think about our priorities, all of them are grounded again in how do we make sure each individual franchisee that's in our system is as happy and as successful as they can be. And we try not to worry too much about the long term, because if you get that right and you're constantly pushing yourself forward, again, the rest really will solve itself. Completely agree. I love kind of where your guys' head's at and yeah, look, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, th- I think the audience is really going to like it. This is a total change up from just the normal one, how you guys are operating kind of within, let's call it the entrepreneurial stack. You know, you're not the multi-unit franchisee, you're not the franchise or founder, but you really are driving new era for some very impressive brands that have been around for a bit. So that's fascinating. But then also just the industry you found yourself in and where that is from a timeline perspective, you know, I, I can get that sense that that it is in the earlier innings. So yeah, really excited to watch you guys grow. So thanks again for coming on. And, you know, where can folks, if they want to follow you guys or any, uh, you know, Uptown Cheapskate or Kid to Kid, you know, is there a good spot online for either of those? Yeah, I'd say we really think we're building something great within Uptown Cheapskate and, and Kid to Kid. And so for people who'd like to follow us or honestly become a part of that growth and be a partner for us, whether that's on the customer side and and going into one of our stores, a prospective franchisee who wants to consider business ownership, or honestly at the corporate level, somebody who'd like to join us here at Basecamp, we would love to be in touch. You can follow us on Instagram and our social media accounts on LinkedIn and, and reach out to us directly. And then also on our brand pages, that would be kidtokid.com or uptancheapsgate.com. Fantastic. All right, guys, we'll plug those in the show notes, everyone. So you know, definitely check him out. And yeah, Zach and Tyler, thanks again for coming on and we'll talk soon. No, thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.